they asked for concessions. Every single union said, we got to give them help because Bill has been so good to us. And we gave concessions, hundreds of millions of dollars in concessions over the years. What we have to do as fellow humans is really care for one another. And by closing that gap, by funding institutions, we can actually take care of one another. And what greater gift it is than to help your fellow man. What's great is seeing groups of officers at our conventions taking pictures together that have been through this program 10 years ago. They never forget the week that they spend here. To build this hydroway, they will remove or rather explode a region of rocks, which is called Pedral do Lourenço. And these rocks have been there for thousands of years. There will be no fish left, no algae left, no living thing. Being identified as, as one of Cesar's kids. I thought my mom had a relationship with the very famous, iconic union leader. But it, it was a reference that they made to kids that were born with my type of physical disability that was linked to an herbicide. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, a discussion on the continuing Pittsburgh Gazette strike on Today in Pittsburgh Labor. The Union Strong podcast has a report on a healthcare worker rally in Albany, New York. Then, a discussion of education and training programs with Matthew Clark on the BCTGM Voices Project. A win for unions and indigenous communities in Brazil on the Solidarity Center podcast. And in our final segment today, Cam Juarez talks about growing up as one of Cesar's kids on words and work. We've got a very special bonus track for you today from a brand new podcast that launches next Tuesday, April 4th. The I Am Story podcast follows the history of the 1968 Memphis sanitation strike as told by those who experienced it firsthand. Produced by AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the I Am Story podcast builds a narrative that envelops listeners, transporting them back to the streets of Memphis, the sanctuary of Mason Temple, the homes of the workers and the Union Hall, where these American heroes decided to take a stand against injustice. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, take a moment, subscribe, share the show, pass it around. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. In 1968, 1,300 sanitation workers in Memphis went on strike to protest deadly, dangerous working conditions and demand dignity. The men were prepared to do and make whatever sacrifice to pursue this goal. The city really didn't give a damn about who they were, just as long as they performed the service for the citizens they didn't treat them as human beings. Coming in April, the I Am podcast tells the story of the sanitation workers who dared to declare, I am a man. 
Now, these were people who had spent the better part of their adult life working for a city, taking orders from a racist supervisor. The fact of the matter is there's still this huge gap between black wealth and white wealth. And that gap has to be closed. That's what Dad was talking about. And that's what got him killed. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen... History is known to repeat itself. And today, 55 years later, Memphis sanitation workers are fighting against some very similar forces. We all believe that workers deserve a seat at the table and they've got to be treated with dignity and respect. And uh, we continue to fight for it. And it goes back to those famous four words that the Memphis sanitation workers had. I am a man. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. Now on 100.1 FM and AM 1020 KDKA, it's Today in Pittsburgh Labor with Jay Doc and Krause. Talk, listen, and speak to the region's most influential leaders. This is Today in Pittsburgh Labor with Jay Doc and Krause. And welcome in, everyone, to this edition of Today in Pittsburgh Labor with J. Doc and Krause as we broadcast to you on KDKA 100.1 FM and 1020 AM. And welcome back, everyone, to this edition of Today in Pittsburgh Labor with J. Doc and Krause. Again, special thanks to Chris Lang, who joined us in our previous segment. Uh, great stuff from Chris. We will continue uh, to try and educate the public and change the narrative on what's happening with the uh, striking post-Gazette workers uh, going back to, as we mentioned on in our show last week, um, back to October. Uh, and as Chris mentioned, the conversation's long uh, before the strike. Joining me now on Today in Pittsburgh Labor, uh, certainly a gentleman who is no stranger uh, to contract negotiations. He has a long history of representing labor unions. Joe Pass Sr. Uh, from Jubilee Pass and Intreary joins us. Joe, welcome into Today in Pittsburgh Labor, my friend. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to read, Joe, this short, looks like it's about a seven or eight sentence paragraph, uh, and then I'll get you to react to it. On January 26th, the National Labor Relations Board Administrative Law Judge ordered the company to get back to the bargaining table with the Guild, saying the company didn't negotiate in good faith, illegally imposed working conditions, and unlawfully survey, surveilled workers engaged in union activities. The judge also ordered the company to rescind the unilateral working conditions, restore the union's previous contract, 
and make it imp- and make its employees whole for any loss of earnings and other benefits that resulted from its unlawful unilateral changes. That sounds pretty direct, pretty straightforward, but that hasn't happened. No, it hasn't. They will take an appeal, which they do to everything. They never want to listen to anybody. They know everything better than anyone, and they continue to fight and appeal. They've done the same thing. For example, we had an arbitration decision where they had illegally implemented provisions, and sure enough, the arbitrator ruled in our favor. They appealed that to the U.S. District Court in the Western District. They lost. They took it to the U.S. Court of Appeals. They lost. They finally had to pay at the end of that rope. And there's hundreds of thousands of dollars they owe to these people. So it's not unusual. They uh, will never agree or abide by anything unless they fight it to the bloody end. And the strange and the worst part about all this is the amount of money they're spending in their, on their lawyers in litigation. They could have settled every single contract ten times over. Joe, excuse the ignorance of this question. You know, why? What's the point? The point, if anything, is to try and break the unions. That's it. You know, people don't realize we began, we understood when the Post-Gazette bought the press, they were a great employer. And it was run by Bill Block, who was the uncle of the two twins that are now in charge, just J.R. and Alan Block. He was absolute the salt of the earth. He was never a problem. He was always very good. He knew everybody who worked there. He was just a wonderful human being. In 2006, they start going into financial problems, and Bill had been was just leaving the head of the organization. But I can always remember when we went to the bargaining table and I represented every union that worked there, they asked for concessions. Every single union said, we got to give them help because Bill has been so good to us. Mr. Block has been so good to us. And we gave concessions, hundreds of millions of dollars in concessions over the years. In fact, these folks haven't had an increase in wages for now. Let's see. The last one was 06. So where are we? 16? Uh, 16, well plus, yeah. Yeah, 16 plus years, right? Yeah, right. 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 And, you know, if they would have come to this negotiations like they had before and since, since 06, hey, look, we need help. We were willing to do it. But they came to these negotiations wanting to strip every right these employees had, every right, from how many hours they'd work a week, no guarantees of work week, take away your health care, pay much, much more for worse health care. So everything that any of these employees in all of these units earned, they wanted to take them away. And why, I have absolutely no idea other than break the unions. That's the only answer. That's going to do it for this edition of Today in Pittsburgh Labor. We thank everybody for tuning in to KDKA 100.1 FM and 1020 AM. On behalf of all of the striking Post-Gazette workers, I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. 
For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. Madison Avenue in downtown Albany was shut down to traffic early in the morning on March 21st to allow buses to pull in one after the other to drop off thousands of health care workers for a day of action. They gathered together as co-workers, as friends, as health care union members of 1199 SEIU. They came from across the state with an urgent call to the governor and legislative leaders to reverse health care cuts in the state budget and close the Medicaid coverage cap. They arrived determined and united, getting inspiration along the way as they marched across the Empire State Plaza. As they made their way to the state capitol, they were led in chants calling for fair pay and an end to health care cuts. It was the biggest budget rally Albany has seen in years. SEIU members filled the 17,000-seat MVP arena, where they were greeted with widespread support from legendary hip-hop artists, including Rakim and Fat Joe. Among the workers in the sea of purple and gold, was Sheena Tannis, a registered nurse from Brookdale, a safety net hospital in Brooklyn, New York. And so you came out here to Albany today. It's been a long day. Walk me through that. You got on the bus at what time you got here? I don't even know. I think I've been up since 2 o'clock um, since two o'clock this morning, and um, I had to be here. This is my day off. I should have been home resting, but it was important for me to lend my voice here and, and be counted in the numbers. I need the legislators and every decision maker to understand how funding is important to all institutions, but especially safety net uh, institutions like the one that I work in. Um, we are, I would say, about 90% dependent on Medicaid because that is what our payer mixes. Our, our patients are um, underserved, and that's the type of health insurance that they have. And for every dollar, we get 76 cents. So what happens to that other 24 cents? The, it keeps creating a gap and a larger gap and an even larger gap. And, at some point, it will become insurmountable. We need funding, we need um, the support in order to have appropriate staffing, to have um, state-of-the-art equipment, to really render excellent care to the poorer um, communities that are sicker. It's a fact that um, without finances, you end up being sicker because you seek um, you seek care later, um, you put off these things, you may not be able to afford medi medications and things of that nature. So by the time you're introduced into the healthcare system, you come to meet a nurse and my, myself, I'm a critical care nurse, sometimes I meet patients and their blood pressure is 220 something over 100 and something. And when you talk to them, they're not taking medications or they're postponing getting care because of um, insurance issues. And that's our population. So um, there's no doubt you got the attention of the governor, who's here in Albany today, and legislative leaders. What is the message that you want to uh, say to them? We really have to close the gap. I understand that budgeting is not easy. And not everyone may think the same way, but we have a social responsibility. We are connected. And if that is one thing that COVID taught us, there is no, when it comes to illness, there is no respect of title, there's no respect of color, there's no respect of Ill illness does not care. 
And what we have to do as fellow humans is really care for one another. And by closing that gap, by funding institutions, we can actually be human again. We can actually take care of one another. And what greater gift it is than to help your fellow man. Well, I couldn't say it any better. And you're very important. And thank you very much for taking the time to come here and for talking to us today. Thank you very much for talking to me as well. If you Welcome to the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union. In this episode, we are covering all sides of the BCTGM's education and training programs. The beginning features an overview with the organizer of these trainings, Research and Education Director Matthew Clark. The education program, as I understand it, has two different types of trainings, right? It's steward training and new officer training. Do you want to talk about the difference between the two? So why don't I start off with steward training? Because I think that reaches the largest volume of our membership. So we run steward trainings either one or two days for any local that requests it. And not every local does it every year. Many locals have what is called education leave language in their contract, which forces the company to pay for them to come to steward training. So we run these trainings, one or two day trainings. Usually it is run by a international rep or it is run by one of our vice presidents. In the past, this past year in 2022, I ran a lot of the trainings because we had really gone on almost a furlough in terms of running the steward trainings during COVID. Uh, and President Shelton wanted me to go out and start up running some of these trainings. So I think I hit 17, 18 states last year. We, hit a, we did a lot of steward training. And the, and the basics behind the steward training is that we're training and educating our stewards to better represent the members on the line, how to file a grievance, how to do communications, how to solve problems, how to deal with management. I have to, how to write an unfair labor practice charge, how to follow up on health and safety. And, but it is a boots on the ground type of training. And last year, I think we trained over a thousand stewards. And so just the sheer volume is quite amazing. The new officer training is obviously much smaller in scope. We do it once a year. We do it here at my tags, the Maritime Institute, just outside of Baltimore. And it's targeted towards financial secretaries, Kurt Yeager, is running a training for 20 financial secretaries so that they learn all the finances, how to do everything properly for a few days. And then I will run a six-day training that begins on Sunday that is geared towards principal officers. And it covers a, a wide range of topics, organizing, negotiations, servicing, internal organizing, labor law, health and safety law, and, and it's targeted towards about 25 or 30 new officers. That's what we have scheduled for this year. And if I could just, what's, I think what's great about our program and what's unique about our program is that we take a multi-pronged approach, a lot of material that's presented, some of it in lecture format, and then we do a lot of group activities because nobody wants to sit and just listen to somebody talk. So we do a lot of group activities where the officers get to work together, they do a mock negotiation. They've got small group activities that they do. They've got homework. They've got projects that they all get to do together. So it allows them to work together. It allows them to kind of get out of their comfort zone. Sometimes they're going to have to come up in front of the class and speak when maybe they don't necessarily like to do that. And then 
I think the part that probably is the most helpful for them is outside of the classroom, is when they get to have lunch or breakfast or go for walks or do, doing these group activities with other officers. And you could have an officer from a, from a very large multi-shop local talking with a, an officer who works in the plant, is a small shop in a small rural area, and they realize they have the same issues. They're both trying to figure out how do we get people to come to a membership meeting? How do we get more involvement? How do we get participation? And that, those are the types of discussions that they have. It's independent of me being there or anybody else. It's those types of discussions. And everybody trades their numbers and emails, and they many of them will stay in contact with each other. And I will say at the conventions, what's great is seeing groups of officers at our conventions taking pictures together that have been through this program 10 years ago. And yet there's four or five of them still around and they're taking pictures together. And they never forget the week that they spend here, which is, which is, which is great. Hi, this is Shauna Vader-Blau, host of the Solidarity Center podcast. I wanted to share an update on and a great victory for the Brazilian community we featured here last year. When a huge waterway project from the Brazilian government meant blasting and dredging a key section of a tropical wetlands in South America, labor leaders joined with community activists to stand up to the Brazilian government and demand an end to the project that threatened the livelihoods of indigenous people that are dependent on the river. The Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office has now suspended the project's license, citing the absence of prior consultation with the communities that could be impacted especially indigenous communities, and the lack of information on the effects of the project on the community. This is a huge achievement, which happened because union leaders like Carmen Foro and other labor activists led a broad coalition of community members, fishers, family farmers, youth, women, and Quilombo community groups raised awareness about the negative impacts of the waterway construction and campaigned to end the project which they viewed as potentially leading to environmental destruction on jobs and communities. This process is not over. There will still be a negotiation to reach a resolution, but suspension of the project is truly a victory for the Riverside communities and for the democratic process. Now let's hear from Carmen Foro, a rural activist, former secretary general of the Central Union of Workers of Brazil, and now part of the federal government in the Ministry of Women. Carmen describes the struggle in this April 2022 episode. So my name is Carmen Foro. I am a family farmer in the state of Pará, which is in the heart of the Amazon. And I am currently Secretary General at the CUT here in Brazil. And I want to share a little bit about the experience with the caravan. In the region of the Tocantins rivers, a river, we have uh, many infrastructure construction works right now uh, undergoing both in the energy and also in the transportation, in the hydroway transportation sector. So in the 70s, the second largest hydropower plant was built in this river, the Tocantins River. And as we know, capital plans its construction works to last for hundreds of years. So now we are seeing the stage of construction of the Araguaia-Tocantins hydroway. So uh, what is this hydroway designed for? Well, its intention is to transport soy, soybean and iron ore, from the state of Mato Grosso in Brazil into a port called Barcarena 
and from the sport, the soybean and the iron ore will be exported into the European Union and into Asia. However, uh, this hydroway, it brings barges, and these barges, as they go through our river transporting soy and iron ore, they leave behind a trace of destruction. And to build this hydroway, they will remove, or rather explode, a region of rocks, which is called Pedral do Lourenço, and these rocks have been there for thousands of years. They were created by nature, and these rocks will be exploded throughout a period of three years. So with three years of explosives in these rocks, there will be no fish left, no algae left, no living thing. And if this project comes to an end, if it's finished, this will actually mean the end of our river. So what we want, we want the future administration to talk to the population, and we want the future administration to give us guarantees on the rights for the future of this river. I want to get old by the banks of this river. I want my children to know that I fought for this river. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers, dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. Hello, it's Sunday. It's time for another episode of Words and Work. We're on the work side today. We're going to have Cam Juarez, who is with the National Park Service, but he grew up as a child of farm workers, and he's going to talk about that experience and how it's affected his life in public service. First thing I'd like you to talk a little bit about is your family history, as because your family were farm workers, right? And could you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up and how that shaped you? Sure, absolutely. One of the things I remember the most and really has had the largest impact on me was because I was a migrant farm worker kid, we would not finish the year and we would start the school year late because of the need to move to California to work in the vineyards, uh, which is how really we got involved with the United Farm Workers. And so of my nine siblings... All of my siblings, including my younger sister and I, at one point or another, worked in some kind of agricultural crop. But really, growing up as a kid, knowing that I was different, having a physical disability, not really understanding it until I was older, but really being bullied and all that in elementary school. But I remember distinctly hearing about the pesticides for the first time and herbicides. And it wasn't until I got to my sophomore year of college when I first started learning from Lupe Castillo about the farm workers in Pima College and learning about pesticides and herbicides and why Cesar fasted the first time, but also why he fasted again in, in 88. And that was called the Fast for Life and being identified as, as one of Cesar's kids. I thought my mom had a relationship with the very famous, iconic United labor union leader. But it, it was a reference that they made to kids that were born with my type of physical disability that was linked to an herbicide, methyl bromide, that was widely used by the Dole Company and other agricultural agribusinesses. I'll be honest with you, Ted, I think I never have a day where I'm not angry or I'm not upset about being born with a physical disability, not just my arms, but I also have had multiple heart surgeries and I'm 100% dependent on a pacemaker because of what these are, these herbicides did to, to my body. And starting at age four, where I had my first heart attack and having reconstructive heart surgery then, 
it is something that I live with every day, but rather than than sit and stew, I made a concerted effort, thanks to the examples that my mom left me with, to turn that hate into something for the good of the community, which is why all of my careers have all been about public service. So if you're okay, I'll just give you a couple examples. No, sure. That'd be great. Yeah. When I came to the Park Service, I was still very much involved with the Arizona Cesar Chavez Holiday Coalition. The idea was to keep not just his memory alive, but to also give what credit was due and support Dolores Huerta and to support the fact that she is a living icon, living legend, and someone who was as equally responsible for the United Farm Worker successes that they had during the 60s, 70s, and, and somewhat in the 80s. But this notion of how do we align the National Park Service with Cesar Chavez and the farm worker movement? But well, the fact is, we have a memorial site for Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez site is in Keene, California. One of the first things that was that came to mind for me in telling this story, when I was recruited by the Park Service, they said, we need to be able to create relevancy for the Latino community in Tucson. How do we do that? And we were in the midst of the centennial. And I said, what we need to do is we need to recruit some people that reflect the populations of this community. And so... We were able to, a program that was already established in the park called the Next Generation Ranger Corps, we were able to establish some some internships that, that were there before I got there. And they, uh, I was able to convince the park to let me take a group of these students where Cesar Chavez was buried, but also the headquarters of the United Farm Workers during the height of the farm worker movement in California. Um, and as a park ranger... I have the ability to request a fee-free day for Saguaro National Park for both districts. So it's an opportunity for people to come into the park. Typically, I give a talk at either one of the districts and, and talk a little bit about history, show some images. But not only keeping that struggle alive, it was President Obama that in 2012 was able to designate 40 acres as a special site with the National Park Service. So I think we're able to tell those, those stories of American history. Uh, not only was he an icon for the civil rights movement and the, uh, but in the labor rights movement, but also an icon for people to look up to. And one, two, three, oh! And that is it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mal Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.